Well, I invite you to turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 20. We'll be looking at one verse this morning. And believe it or not, it's, it's uh, fully there in your bulletin as well in the title of the sermon. That is the entirety of the verse. Um, but if you want to look in your Bibles, you can turn there and then also follow along as we look at other passages as well. But I want to begin by just uh, considering um, a direct application for us today. In such polarizing times, I think it's difficult to maintain a godly posture with those that we disagree. Uh, We're quick to allow our political allegiances to determine how we think about and treat others. And I'm not uh, assuming that is the case, but oftentimes that is. Right, if we follow the attitudes of many of our favorite radio and cable TV pundits, we may find ourselves not only in fundamental disagreement with our opponents, but we'll begin to despise everything about them. What is most discouraging to me is that this polarizing attitude has entered into the church across the nation and likely around the world. Uh, there's not a, a pastor that I know who is not dealing with various levels of tension within their own context. And in some cases, it's impacted the leadership. In other cases, it's, it's put the congregation at odds with the leadership. Um, in almost every case, it's led to some kind of division where several people have uh, become so offended that they no longer see any possibility for unity and they leave their church. Now, I'm, not, I, I, I'm convinced that much of this division has been caused by the elevation of our commitments to secondary and tertiary matters. Uh, people are not dividing over the gospel. They're not dividing over the, the, a specific sola of the Reformation, at least not in this current time, not in this current climate. We are dividing over matters that are secondary. And so if those matters have been more important to us than our primary purpose, we should repent. I would also acknowledge that there are cases where the division can relate to a matter of first importance. And, and, and so I'm not suggesting that every case is so black and white, so clear. Sometimes division is inevitable, but we should also seek to maintain the unity of the church as a witness of our love for Christ and his bride. Where compromise has taken place and scripture and, and offense has been given to the Lord because scripture has been compromised, I can understand. Where that has not taken place, I think we need to be as gracious as possible. So where discord exists, we should defer personal preferences for the sake of others. That is the, the principle of the weaker brother. Uh, if, if you have a personal preference that, that uh, interferes with the convictions of a brother or sister in Christ, you defer to them. But we should also ensure that our convictions are grounded in Scripture. Right, that our most strongest convictions are grounded there. And so that doesn't eliminate all tension, but it should lead to a much greater unity in the church. Now, what does that have to do with the Sixth Commandment? 
Well, God desires unity among his covenant people so much that he forbids anyone from eliminating their personal opponent, opponents, whether that be in thought, word, or deed. And we saw in word in James 3, right, a rebuke of that, a correction of that, or a warning of the danger of doing that. But we can also do it in our thoughts, where we harbor so much bitterness towards someone that we've broken and violated the sixth commandment in that way. And of course, what we'll look at this morning primarily is the way we do that indeed, and the implications of that and, and ways in which our nation has oftentimes compromised even on this very fundamental reality of you shall not murder. It's a very fundamental command of morality. So this is a, a practical issue that must begin with under, our understanding of scripture before it involves any political or social position regarding our present crisis. We begin with scripture, right? Opinions about the appropriate response to the coronavirus will differ across every sphere of society. You will not be able to, to uh, accommodate everyone's desires on this matter, but we must not allow those differences to destroy the covenantal relationships that God has established that God has given us to equip us. And so I realize that, that most people are not resorting to hatred or to physical violence on this matter, although you can see some virtual or, or some uh, uh, viral videos that have gone around that I've seen where people are incredibly, are reacting just incredibly um, viciously to those they see not in agreement with them on mask issues in particular. But for the most part, we're not hating one another. We're not physically fighting over it. I don't know of anyone who's been murdered over a difference on coronavirus, you know, over a, disagreements about, uh, a disagreement about it. But many relationships have been severed within families, uh, within churches, and within communities. So what boils underneath that division, that outward division is sometimes a heart that has already violated the sixth commandment in word and thought. And so it can be helpful to speak in terms of, in these extreme terms, right? Speak in terms of murder in order to build camaraderie around the essentials. You think about the, the extremes and you say, what is the most important thing? What should be driving us? What should we all be fighting for as believers? And so I hope that, that this works toward that end for us this as we consider the the realities the horrendous and horrifying realities of the uh, breaking of the sixth commandment the very obvious breaking of those that physical commandment not just the in in hatred but in actual killing of others hope that we'll see what is essential to us god through the leadership of moses had led the israelites out of bondage to egypt they are now free in the context of, of Exodus 20. They're free to worship God and live according to his standards. But they don't make it very far before God uh, puts some restrictions of conduct that are spelled out very clearly for them in the Mosaic Law. So yes, they have freedom, but their freedom does not give them license to sin. And every commandment that is included in this list has implications that carry well beyond the substance of the content itself of the command right that becomes abundantly clear in the sixth commandment 
So the first four commandments deal primarily with how we are to show love to God, and the latter six commandments deal primarily with how we are to show love for our neighbor. There's interlap, or there's overlapping among these, uh, but that's the, the basic breakdown. The first four are dealing with love for God. The latter six are dealing with love for neighbor. So the fifth commandment, which we'd spent two weeks looking at, dealt with honoring our parents, and by implication, we honor all authorities that God has placed over us. Um, a very relevant topic to our current situation. It's going to be no different with the Sixth Commandment, right? The Sixth Commandment prohibits murder, and by implication, it prohibits any hatred of others, including our enemies. So the biblical principle that takes into account passages of application from all of Scripture is this. No human may take the life of another human, whether physically or psychologically. Okay, so that's, that's the principle I want to work with. No human may take the life of another human, whether physically or psychologically. That is, whether in deed or in, in, um, in thought. Uh, also, we could say in word. But as always, there are exceptions to this rule. And we'll consider those exceptions. Some of them we'll consider today and others we'll consider next week. But the basic principle is that the Sixth Commandment forbids murder. And that includes thoughts or deeds which tend toward murder. And so, before we read this verse, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that we can consider this very basic and, and simple, at least on the surface, to uh, understand. It's a commandment not to take the life of another who has been created in your image. Lord, we want to honor and respect them because of who created them because we honor and respect you. Lord, convict us where we have gone outside of the bounds of this commandment and re restore to us a right understanding, a right love and appreciation for our neighbor. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. You shall not murder amen this is god's holy word uh obviously i think that wraps up the shortest sermon passage we've ever read um the hebrew in fact only contains two words so although some translations use the word kill here the the term generally implies intent to do harm so the translation murder is preferred it's more accurate uh, so this morning, we're going to look at the physical act of murder. Next week, we'll consider the psychological aspects of murder. And I want us to look at the various examples that would apply today, and, since, and then also consider some exceptions. So we'll begin with some examples, and then we'll move into some exceptions, and then we'll close it out with, with some application. But um, God created man in his own image. He alone has the authority to take away life. Because he created life, he's the only one who has the authority to take life. Uh, when someone decides to take their own life or the life of another, they disrespect the image of God in which they were created. So there's no earthly distinction. No earthly distinction. Ethnicity, uh, politically, um, any distinction you can think of, uh, gender, height. Uh, eye color, 
language. It, it does not matter whether from birth or nature, whatever distinction we come up with, none of those distinctions justify ending the life of an opponent. And the basic command is easy enough to understand. We, we do not have the right to murder another person. And yet, while 10 out of 10 people might agree with that on, on, on the surface, that statement, some create exceptions that are not allowed for. And so I want us to, to consider some of those. First one would be abortion. The vast majority of abortions are performed by those who perceive a baby as opposed to be opposed to their station in life. Right? They treat that child in their womb as, as an opponent, someone who stands in the way of what they want, of their desires. And so maybe the child would require more care than they can provide in their uh, to their understanding or or the shame of carrying a child to term and not keeping it is an opponent to their reputation and their immediate concerns um, at what point does a human being take on the image of God that's the question we have to answer as believers it's it's the moment that life begins and the Lord already knows that child while it's forming in the womb, according to Psalm 139, verse 13. It's indeed murder to end the life of a fetus. Everyone agrees that a newborn baby has a right to life. No one denies that. So really an appropriate question for pro-choice advocates to consider is what are the differences between a fetus and a newborn child. And I like the argument that Scott Klusendorf provides. His pro he's a pro-life apologist, and he summarizes four main differences using the acronym SLED, S-L-E-D. He says these four main differences, we could argue, are what, what dif uh, the difference between a fetus and a newborn child. So the S stands for size. Some would say, well, it's just too small. I mean, what rights should a, a, a very tiny, the size of a pen dot, you know, at, at, at conception? What rights does that child have? Well, if it were about size, then the taller and the larger among us would be deserving of more human rights. It's not logical. No, we don't take that approach anywhere else. If it's, uh, the, the L is level of development. So you have S size, L is level of development. Again, maturity in capabilities and intelligence do not determine rights. Thirdly, the environment. E stands for environment. And Scott argues that where you are has no bearing on who you are inside a womb or outside of the womb doesn't have a bearing on who you are as a person. Right? Traveling eight inches down the birth canal does not turn a blob of tissue into a protectable human. Some people are so confused that they think that it's fake when they see pictures of a dismembered fetus. They think it's fake because they've been told a lie that it's, that it's not really formed. It's horrifying. 
and the, you, you, you should look at the pictures to recognize that there is not, especially as they get nearer to full term, the differences are minimal. And so the environment has no bearing on who you are. And then lastly, degree of dependency. And I know I'm going through these fast. I encourage you to read the full argument by Scott. There's articles that you can see this, um, and he's, he's also written a book on it. But degree of dependency. Again, do those who depend upon insulin, do those who depend upon pacemakers to sustain life, are they less worthy of human rights because of that? So degree of dependency doesn't determine uh, the status of a human being. So life begins at conception and it's murder to intentionally end that life. We should not minimize the importance of the pro-life movement. We shouldn't belittle it and say, well, this is just one component and we should look at the broader picture politically here. I, I hear that so often. You should be pro-life in every setting. Sure, we should be. But if that's to minimize the importance of abortion and to minimize the differences we have with politicians who promote abortion, then we should be careful that we're not overstepping the bounds of scripture. I think we need to learn how to defend our position with grace in a culture that boasts in their depravity. And right now it's becoming almost a trend to boast about your abortion. That should not be something that we take pride in, but that we are ashamed of. The, the gospel message doesn't end there though, right? And we'll get to that. If I simply left there with everyone who, is, who has this different view on abortion or who has committed an abortion in their past, if we left it at that, it'd be pretty hopeless. But the Christian message is much bigger than that. And so I don't want you to think that that's where we're leaving that. But we are going to move on to other topics, and we'll come back to that in the end. Secondly, I think we compromise on suicide. Some people try to have a very compassionate approach to suicide. Well, suicide is self-murder. It's forbidden by the Sixth Commandment. This is not the unforgivable sin, as many Roman Catholics claim, but it does raise serious questions about the presence of genuine faith and repentance. And so downplaying the serious nature of this sin may in fact lead someone who is in a who is in a downward spiral of depression, it'll, it might just give them the confidence they need to go forward through with it, to end their life. And so we shouldn't compromise on that. We should recognize that it is a sin. DeYoung, Kevin DeYoung pleads with those who are in despair, your life is precious to God even when you have concluded that it's pointless. So there's a way to have compassion for those who are in despair. And there's a way to stand firm on our conviction that, of this commandment. And one way that we, we see compromise in this area is specifically with the idea of euthanasia. Doctors are required to protect and preserve life. They take the Hippocratic oath that they will do no harm. And so that doesn't mean doctors must use artificial life support when the patient denies that, that's different. But they should not hasten their patient's death by giving them poison. Euthanasia is murder. And we'll see how even the church is confused on that matter. Lastly, I would say negligence. 
right? If, you're, if your negligence leads to the death of someone, you could also be guilty of murder. There's examples of this in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 21, uh, verses 28 through 29 talks about if an ox gores a person, if an ox uh, attacks a person, an Israelite was required to keep that ox locked up. If they decided not to, if they decided to continue to let that ox roam around and it attacked another person, then they would be held accountable for murder, the owner of that ox, right? That's negligence. They didn't directly kill the person, but because of their negligence, they allowed, something, they allowed a, a death. They did not prize life enough. Uh, Deuteronomy 22 also gives the instruction for homeowners to, to provide a parapet around their roof. That's a, a, small, uh, a small wall. It'd be similar to today requiring a fence around your pool right, to protect life. To, to prioritize and, and protect life, you are required to take precautions. So the owner would be held accountable for murder if someone fell from their roof and it didn't have a wall. This includes reckless behavior that puts your own convenience or desires above the safety of others. And since God has made every human being after his own image, we are to be extraordinarily cautious about protecting the sanctity of life. We do not take our own life or the life of others for granted by reckless living. So those are some examples of ways in which I think even the church has compromised. Definitely our culture and our nation has compromised. But let's move on to some exceptions to the sixth commandment because on the other hand, some people don't even allow for exceptions that would contradict scripture itself. Right? Ironically, the same folks who would defend abortion and euthanasia would point to the sixth commandment in order to argue against valid exceptions such as capital punishment and just war. And so we'll look at those two and, and a couple uh, other examples, but capital punishment, the death penalty, the punishment was to fit the crime. You're, you forfeit your right to life by taking another person's life, according to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, and Exodus 21, 12. And so it's not considered murder for the civil authorities to put someone to death. They are upholding the value of life by putting someone to death who has taken life. We can apply something very similar to the just war theory, right? You cannot read Joshua without acknowledging that there are exceptions in war. That Jesus did not instruct soldiers to leave their calling. Nor did he rebuke the centurion for his military office. Pacifists argue that the only wars justified are those in which God gave clear and direct commandment. Using war as a form of judgment upon Israel's enemies and therefore any modern warfare is forbidden for the believer, for the Christian. However, if we're, take, if we're to take that position consistently, we would have to suggest that the elimination of murderous tyrants would never be justified. So we'd have to watch, stand by and watch as genocide takes place. Most reform scholars don't take that approach, right? They've adopted some form of Augustine's just war theory. And like most of these doctrines, there's a spectrum, right, of, of components to the just war theory that, that some are more strict than others. 
But in order to preserve life, at times, war is necessary. War may be necessary in order to protect the peace and to punish unbridled wickedness. I think many, if not most, modern examples do not meet the high threshold of the just war theory. But that, that spectrum exists, and you can have a strict or a loose interpretation, but again, most reform scholars have some adoption of this principle where it allows for war when necessary. Thirdly, I would say there's uh, an exception for accidental killing. It's, it's treated differently than murder. This is different than negligence as well, although sometimes you might be, your negligence may lead to an accidental murder, but your negligence can be held culpable. Yeah, accidental killing is, is where God established cities of refuge for people to flee to, where there was an involuntary, uh, it's sometimes called the involuntary manslaughter. I would say even this is a form of punishment. The fact that you have to flee to a city of refuge and then in, in stay there. If you were to leave the city of refuge and say, well, I didn't do it on purpose, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave, I'm going to go back home, well, then the avenger of blood had the right to take your life. You were supposed to stay in the city of refuge that whole time. And, and, and you had to stay there until the death of the high priest. So hopefully the high priest wasn't young. I mean, but you had to stay there until the death of the high priest, and then at that point, you could go back. You would be free to leave the, the city of refuge. So again, accidental killings were an exception to the Sixth Commandment. And then lastly, and there's other exceptions, but the last one I want to bring up is self-defense. If a thief broke into a home, the owner would not be found guilty if he struck the man and killed him. The fact that he's breaking and entering is a threat to life. And so self-defense is a valid form of killing. This is consistent with our own laws of self-defense. Sometimes the only way to save life, your own or the life of your family, is to take the life of an attacker. So it's justified. Well, I want us to, to close with some application. Right, we, we, I, I want us to really consider how much the church has, has compromised on these matters. And maybe as we were going through them, you, you've already begun to develop in your mind all the ways in which you've heard Christians compromise on these things. And I'm not going to get into all the details, but in addition to foggy thinking regarding those valid exceptions that we just described this, uh, to the Sixth Commandment, there is a decreasing difference between the world and the church, or at least those who profess belief in Christ and their participation, even in the examples that we looked at earlier. So I want to go through those in succession, right? Many young Christian girls who fall into sexual immorality compound their sin by quietly aborting their child. They do it because they're filled with too much shame to enter back into the church pregnant. And so they feel it's better to end the life. A 2014 study found that 54% of abortions were provided to professing Christians. That includes, includes Catholics, but across, across the spectrum of, of Christianity, 54% of abortions were provided by professing Christians. The church must learn how to condemn sin in its most heinous forms while also celebrating God's gift of life. 
young unmarried mothers should feel loved and accepted in a community that cherishes life. They should not feel shamed and chastised and unwelcome. Thankfully, those who attend church are significantly less likely to commit suicide. But it still happens far too often, even among believers. It's interesting that as church attendance has waned in America, suicide rates have increased. I don't think that's accidental. There is little doubt that the coronavirus lockdown has played a role in this year's statistics and experts believe it will continue to play a role as the increased number of those suffering from depression turn to drugs and alcohol to numb their pain, which will have devastating impacts one to two, year, two years from now when they ultimately do take their life. So the impact is not just immediate here. The impact is long-term. I think we need to count the costs of the lockdown in light of this statistic. Am I still on? We're almost done, so I'm going to just shout. Uh, a 2005, oh, better not keep shouting. A 2005 Gallup poll suggested that 61% of professing Christians think euthanasia is compassionate. 61% of professing Christians think euthanasia is compassionate. But when you call it what it is, doctor-assisted suicide, the support drops significantly. So one thing this means is that we at least still see suicide as wrong. We just don't really know what euthanasia is. And the way it's defined and described is important. And so let's be clear when dealing with the subject. It is indeed a form of suicide. Those don't sound like good noises. Euthanasia is a form of suicide, which is self-murder. Finally, I don't believe the church is any less reckless than the secular world. In, in some ways, because Christians are confident of the Bible's teaching about heaven, we can become even more reckless. And so every death leaves behind a number of immediate family members who continue to suffer the loss in this life. I'm not saying this because I want to increase any amount of, of shame that we might feel on these matters. Many of you uh, know women who have had abortions. Many of us know loved ones who have taken their own lives. Many of us have families that have suffered the loss of a loved one due to the reckless living of someone else. And so we need to speak the truth in love. We need to promote the value of life at every age. But more than anything else, we need to learn how to show compassion to those suffering under the heavy weight of shame. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, according to Romans 2.4. And so the law is right and good in pointing out the sin of murder. 
but we should also know how to point people to the Lord who offers the hope that they are seeking. The same Lord who gave life has the authority to take it away, and the same Lord who condemns murder also has the compassion to forgive his own murderers. It was while suffering on the cross that Jesus declared, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Have compassion for those who are naive about these things. Know the truth, know how to defend the truth, and then show compassion to those who suffer under guilt and shame. The Lord Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many, including in that number were some who mocked him, who despised him, and who condemned him to be crucified. Only at the cross does the shame of our sin meet the compassion of a sinless Savior. Jesus Christ suffered under the weight of our guilt and shame so that we might experience the joy and freedom and peace of eternal life. And so let us rejoice in a life that is filled with the purpose of serving him and pointing others to him through the word of the cross. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have this this word of truth, this commandment that gives us very clear instruction. And there are implications that we find throughout scripture of this commandment and how we can honor the commandment. We can obey it in thought, in word, and in deed. Lord, as we consider this topic, as we consider to reflect upon these things this week and, and as we bring it up again next week, Lord, we pray that, that our minds might be rightly corrected where we've gone astray, that we might be rightfully submissive to the categories that your word provides on this commandment. And Lord, fill us with a compassion that can only come from your spirit, the compassion that was ex- exhibited by Christ on the cross, that we would even sacrificially uh, give up our own life for the life of others. Or may we prize life that much. And may we be willing to play the ultimate sacrifice to point others to you because for all eternity we'll be rejoicing with them for your glory we ask it in christ's name amen